0: I
1: die,
0: die, die, I die, I die, I die, I die, I die, I I I I I I da da da, hee da hee die, hee da hee da hee da hee I hee da hee da hee it died a night, <laughs> I died a night, I died a night, I died a I died a I died I
1: friends you ever ask yourself if life is about the past or the future is life about the past or the future let's bracket the present for the moment and today we're going to explore that question that debate if you will not only through not only through the personal lens but through the lens of our tradition Are we primarily situated as a people of the past or a people of the future? So let's start with a little poll here. What are you personally most excited about? One, a Judaism of memory and nostalgia. Number two, a Judaism rooted in engaging tradition Number three, Judaism rooted in active progress. Or number four, a Judaism of hopeful, even radical messianism. So of course, these are always imperfect choices. We're complicated people. But where would you situate yourself in terms of what animates your um, Jewish connection most in regards to the past or the future?
2: Okay.
1: Here we go. Wow. Zero say it is, it is primarily about memory and nostalgia, about the past. And zero on the other extreme, not extreme is not the right word, but on the other end, say um, that it's primarily about a utopia, about a messianism. But 50% here say it's about the past. It's about engaging in tradition as we've inherited And 50% say it's about active progress. Interesting. And I bet if we had add a more nuanced question in there of the connection in the two tradition and progress, we'd get an even more interesting result. Okay, friends. Here we go. So Jewish tradition proposes that three lights illuminate the world. Three lights illuminate the world. There's Or Bereshit, the light of creation. There is Or Sinai the light of revelation, and there is Or Mashiach, the light of redemption, right? Those are the great three theological themes of our history, creation, revelation, redemption. And along with those three theological themes are three different lights which permeate our universe and our souls, and that our souls are bound up in different ways with the experience of creation experience of receiving truth and light, and the experience of hope and redemption. So typically, mystics engage in Or Bereshit, the beginning, in a sense, of the intellectual history of time. Here we will instead discuss and turn our attention to the other two lights, the competing lights of Or Sinai and ormashiach. Mashiach. One light pulls us back in history, to our first interaction with ideas, which in some sense, preceded history. And one light pulls us forward to a time when, time as we know it no longer exists. I think that what is so meaningful about the Jewish religion, now to be clear, I don't think Judaism is a religion. I think it's a mistake to equate it with Christianity and Islam, whatever. Judaism is much bigger than a religion. A religion is one part of Judaism. But what is so meaningful about the Jewish religion is that while we keep creation and revelation burning brightly and strong, we are focused equally on redemption. Theologically, we're focused on cultivating, appreciating, and using the light represented by Or Bereshit and Or Sinai. We then utilize those two lights to ultimately move us towards Or Mashiach, a redeemed soul, a redeemed Torah, a redeemed society, and a redeemed God, so to speak. For many Jews, the idea of modernity runs counter to our tradition, our livelihood, or even worse, our religion's very survival. Modernity is a threat to some Jews. However, to be quote-unquote modern does not have to mean that we are tied to the present. Such a perspective is reactive and reveals a potentially short-sighted religiosity. To be modern means that we are situating ourselves at the point of shifting towards the future, at the forefront of social change and paradigm shifts guided by Torah and fueled by Or Mashiach. So traditionally, many Jewish thinkers embrace the idea of Yeridat HaDorot. Let me repeat that phrase if you're not familiar with it. Yeridat HaDorot, that humans have been in descent since revelation and that we have been rendered morally impotent yet even if this idea is embraced there is still some virtue in being a small and impotent yet still elevated people quote unquote midgets on the shoulders of giants religion and its tradition when viewed as being situated in the past can give birth to a comfortable religious stagnancy and instill an exclusionary spirit in its adherence. This enables someone to simply retreat from modernity into the ghetto. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once taught, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. In a similar vein, Oliver Wendell Holmes, the great Supreme Court Justice, once admonished a young colleague that it is required that you share the passion and action of your time at the peril of being judged not to have ever lived. We must leave our comfort zone to engage with the world in the context of our own time and also to strive for a better future. Friends, in the fifth century BCE, Protagoras led the philosophical transition from a focus on the universe toward one of human values. That's a radical shift. This monumental shift in philosophical thinking and understanding helped set the intellectual stage for important philosophers like Socrates and Plato to explore eternal truths, including virtue, justice, and the nature of human experience. Protagoras was responsible for a paradigm shift that proved crucial for the development of intellectual history and character development. Since the era of the Enlightenment, however, we seem to have swung too far toward individualism, thereby neglecting the import of collectivism and our responsibility, even as individuals, to society and to the world in general. Today, we must work to interweave the global and the local more deeply and meaningfully to develop a focus on the meta picture, the cosmos, universe, globe nation, society, from the perspective of the individual. So just to, just to unpack that one more time. Prior to Protagoras, we have an idea that the universe is central, not human experience. And because of his shift, the Greek philosophers set the stage to look at virtue. But then in enlightenment, humans pushed radically towards the individual. Of course, there's some benefits to that. With modernity, we see individual rights, We see societal rights. We see democracy. But arguing now, maybe we sometimes go too far into the realm of entitlement, focus on the self, and forget the collective. Uh, Good point, Matthew. The word modern in architecture refers to being in the moment, which means it is often passing. Very interesting. I want to hear more about that in our conversation, because I don't know anything about that. In Carl Stern's interview with Rabbi Dr. Abraham Joshua Heschel, Heschel wrote, or he said, I would say, let them remember that there is a meaning beyond absurdity. Let them be sure that every little deed counts, that every word has power and that we can, everyone, do our share to redeem the world in spite of all absurdities and all the frustrations and all disappointments. And above all, remember that the meaning of life is to build a life as if it were a work of art. You're not a machine and you are young start working on this great work of art called your existence. Wow. When we focus on redemption, we are stirred to remember our true significance, that every little action we take has an effect that matters. One of the great tragedies of the human condition is that millions of people live honest and earnest lives filled with love and dedicated to the service of others, but pass from the world, never having fully appreciated their own greatness and holiness. Many don't fit within our society's current definition of hero, and many receive no accolades. Their name is on no building. Their name is not recognized. Nobody wrote a chapter about them. They have no accolades for doing what they simply considered to be the right thing. Societally, we can keep a high standard for excellence, like concurrently supporting and honoring those who contribute to the true betterment of our society by serving others. All of us are unique and blessed with ideas and gifts, skills and feelings that we can use to contribute to making the world a better place. And the uniqueness that each of us exhibits means that our contribution is one that no one else can make. Those blessed with the gifts of easy access to knowledge and mentorship must not abuse the power and ignore the responsibility that comes with those gifts. Rather, they must exercise a particularly engaged role in creating an ever more just society. Passivity in the face of immorality and injustice has played a terrible and significant role in the descent and impotence of man. As the American 20th century philosopher, Richard Rorty concluded, the Foucauldian academic left in contemporary America is exactly the sort of left that the oligarchy dreams of, a left whose members are so busy unmasking the present that they have no time to discuss what laws need to be passed in order to create a better future. Very interesting critique from a a postmodernist. Let us reject the academic ivory tower and use our knowledge to perfect God's creation as we seek out or Mashiach. Here's what it says in Bruchot, in the Babylonian Talmud of Brachot. It has been taught, God is angered every day. That's from Tehillim, that's from Psalms. And when is God angry? A brayta, meaning an extra source of the rabbis of that time period that weren't recorded in the Talmud, was taught in the name of Rabbi Meir. When the sun shines in the morning and all the kings of the east and west place their crowns on their heads, and bow to the sun, HaKadosh Baruch Hu immediately becomes angry, <laughs> right? All, the most powerful people put crowns on their own heads and bow to the sun, and God, so to speak, in an anthropomorphic sense, is angry. We all have unique gifts to share that are made all the more powerful when we are illuminated with the divine light. However, the prerequisite for reflecting divine light is the understanding of the source of our energy and success. And to achieve this understanding requires that we strive with all of our might to engage in the endeavor while maintaining the humility it so requires. Friends, let us take to heart the understanding that we were endowed with Orberashi, the light of creation, and blessed with Or Sinai, the light to receive truth. And now that it is our duty through the spiritual and actual cultivation of that light that is within us all to seek or Mashiach, to work for a better world. Judaism is unique in its situational balance between the past and the future, leading many among us to seek the comfort of the past and to resist the responsibility that comes with being a modern people. By the way, this is why Jews argue so much, right? If we were just the people of the future, we would argue. If we we're just the people of the present, we would argue. But what we're doing is, we're a people arguing about the interpretation of the past and then arguing about however we just interpreted the past, how it should apply to this moment and how it should apply to this moment based upon the kind of future we're trying to cultivate. Right? This is about um, a number of layers of argumentation on interpretation. We must not act in such a fashion. We must embrace our identity as a people blessed with its incredible tradition and utilize the knowledge, spiritual revelation, and ethical obligations that come from our past to make the world we inhabit in the present a more holy and just place, not only for ourselves, but for all forms of life. This is our duty. This is how we seek the future life and the future light of Or Mashiach. Will we ever end poverty, hunger, and genocide? Is there hope that tomorrow will look brighter than today? The effort to achieve movement towards social justice is guided by a messianic vision that a world that is more just and free is possible. Can we as Jews, indeed as humanitarians, embrace this promise of progress? Does this really fit in? Since the Holocaust, since the Shoah, most philosophers have rejected the notion that the Enlightenment represented the the beginning of an era of progress. 2,000 years earlier, the Talmudic rabbis warned of the diminution of progress, claiming that the generations are in a steady state of decline. The Talmud refers to one generation as being of men and to a later one as of donkeys. The sages exempted no one even calling the matriarch Sarah a monkey when compared to Eve, right? This is actually pretty radical, friends, because what that Talmudic passage is saying is that that, that Yeridata Dorot, the descent of our capacity is not from Sinai, but from creation, right? That Eve was on a much higher level than Sarah Imenu. This decline is punctuated mainly by ignorance of divine truth. The prophetic Ruach HaKodesh, holy inspiration, ceased to inspire humans with the deaths of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, as we learn in Tractate Sanhedrin, but also by the loss of basic ability. Here's what it says in, um, in Brakhot 35. Um, okay, maybe that's not going to be on your screen. Um, What it says in Brachot 35 is, in former generations, people made Torah their vocation and their trades their avocation, and they succeeded in both. In later generations, when people made their trades their vocation and Torah their avocation, they didn't succeed in either. Although the sages articulated their clear concern regarding spiritual and intellectual decline, this is not the whole story. For example, Rav Abraham Yitzchak Cohen Cook subscribed to the Hegelian school of thought that embraced historical progress, and he articulated his vision as such. We should not immediately feel obliged to refute any idea that comes to contradict something in the Torah, but rather we should build the palace of Torah above it. In so doing, we reach a more exalted level and the ideas are clarified. And therefore, when we are not pressured by anything, we can confidently also fight on the Torah's behalf. What he's saying is, we don't live in a Torah of the past, we're not afraid of of modernity, um, and we can build the Torah based on the new phenomena uh, that emerge with progress. Rav Cook further defended the idea of progress, suggesting an evolution marked by constant progress provides solid grounds for optimism. So friends, to move to a conclusion here, other Jewish voices share this view that we need not merely long for the past. Rav Shlomo Shlomo al-Moli of 16th century Ottoman Empire, for one, argued that greater access to information makes it quote unquote plausible that the knowledge and understanding of the later generations should exceed that of the former ones. The Midrash claimed that while we are indeed very far from the past sources of spiritual light, far from creation, far from from Sinai, far from the temple. We stand closer to the anticipated, or Mashiach, and we are correspondingly more illuminated. Rav Sidkiyahu ben Avraham Anu, who I'm sure you've never heard of, 13th century Rome, argued in his noted work, Shiboli HaLeket, that while we may have lost great scholars, inhibiting a world, quote unquote, like that of dwarves standing on the shoulders of giants, our view is much broader and deeper than previous generations. Who do we normally attribute that quote to? Um, dwarves on the shoulders of giants? It's some, uh, modern, uh, uh, some, some modern scientists. Was it? Uh, um, anyone remember? So anyways, it's not true. It comes from this rabbi in 13th century Rome, who actually first gave this phrase in recorded history. Um, I'm sure you'll Google it, you'll, and you'll see who everybody thinks said it. Um, In addition to the search for religious truth as a barometer of progress and decline, we must be concerned with the general human welfare, which that truth illuminates. Today, we have more access to transportation, medication and technology than ever before. We have a greater awareness of tragedy and more resources to combat oppression and injustice than ever before. Eradicating poverty and hunger is now only a matter of human will. For this reason, friends, to conclude, we must maintain hope and progress in the possibility that we can create a more just world, where all children have access to quality education and all people have adequate food, shelter, and healthcare. We may have diminished access to more simple truths, but we have a greater potential than ever before to embrace the more challenging truths and responsibilities of our interconnected universe. OK, friends, where do you fall out here? on the vote between is duties about the past or the future or somewhere in between? Love to hear from you, Matthew.
3: Okay, the comment on architecture was people often say they want a modern building, a modern look, and then five years later, it's very passe, it's the knockoff of Frank Lloyd Wright. And it really doesn't make it. And I forget the word that this woman architect used instead of modern, redoing a building. And it's the same view that you don't wanna be caught up in the moment without thinking of the past and the future because that moment will pass very quickly and seem very fleeting. And in Judaism, Going back to Kaplan, the past has a voice, but not a veto. We have to respect the past as we move forward, but have a grounding in the past and contemporary values as we move forward.
1: That, that, Matthew, that, that's, that's a really beautiful example and it really elucidates what we're getting at here. If, if your number one desire in designing a new building, a home, is to be exactly in line with the fad of the moment, it's it's gonna be outdated very quickly. Um, I think that's a really powerful way to say it. You know, I, I, another sort of I, I hate to, I, I don't want to call it um, mundane, but I um, but I, I, and by any means, but I think like in the financial realm, Steve, you can share some light here. I know you know, you know something about stocks. That someone like me who knows nothing about stocks, if you see a major decline one day, you might say, "Oh, we should pull everything out of the market," you know. And then people in the market will say, no, 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 you know, declines happen, but if you look at a 10-year trajectory, it's always gonna, it's always gonna be on an increase. So don't worry about the day to day. If you're too concerned about the about the being exactly in line that day and not looking at the longer trajectory, you're gonna lose out. You're gonna lose out. Yeah, Vicky, I think you were about to jump in there. You're on mute still. There I
4: am. I was gonna say I liked what Matthew had to say, but to make put it into popular. Uh, parlance, I just say, you have to know where you come from to know where you're going.
1: Uh, yeah. yeah. That You know, so Vicky, can you unpack that a little bit? Why is that? Why is it that knowing where I came from is, is, is an asset, either an essential asset or an important asset to knowing where I'm going? Why can't I just say, I don't care where I came from. Here's where I want to go.
4: I think that's two ways. I think, first of all, I think human experience is hugely important in terms of our identity uh, construction of who we are. So where you came from, you know, who, what your background is, who your parents are, how you were raised, all that stuff goes into making you who you are. And secondly, um, I think from a point of what you spoke about before, this notion of obligation and this notion of responsibility has to come from somewhere. And if you look back to our texts and you look back to the wisdom of our tradition, it's there. Um, if you look back to history where people didn't follow that, you see what happens. Um, so for me, that's a meaningful way of looking at it. Does that very cool.
1: Yeah, very cool. Very cool on a personal level, on a religious level, on a historical level. You know, and I think it's also true on a political level. It would be very easy for American Jews, who no doubt with rising anti Semitism, by and large, we are a community um, that has access to power establishments. And we can forget our history of marginalization. Um, we could forget our history of marginalization and not access that power that we have access to for the most downtrodden. And in fact, many American Jews do forget our history of what it meant to be, um, um, to have lived through what we lived through, second class citizens at best, and forget what it's like to be a population on the margins. And so if we want to know where we want to go, part of it has to be remembering that spiritual consciousness of of where we were. What was that? I was gonna say
4: memory, you know, we can talk about memory and history. I mean, I'm a believer in memory uh, being a force. Um, and also, you know, I, I'm very positive one in terms of this notion as you're saying of obligation. I'm gonna throw something else out to you and for the others on the, on the, or in the class today. I, when you were talking about, um, I believe you were talking about intellectual scholarship, okay, and it seemed to be that it, was, it could be viewed critically particularly people, I and mean, that's another whole area now that's exceedingly divisive about what's happening on campuses, what's happening in the election, intellectual realm. I'm a believer that that's a, an important component for me in understanding what's happening. Um, to see people with you know really great minds that are looking and, and analyzing, using critical thinking skills to help me understand what's happening, particularly politically and particularly historically.
1: You know, Vicki, I I really appreciate that. Let me add one thing and then I see Lauren's gonna share then Michael, I see Della came on video so maybe she's gonna jump in too. So um, one thing, yeah, I wanna recommend an article and um, for those on the left, you'll be challenged by it. Those of you who view yourselves as centrist or just right of center, um, it might be obvious to you but Professor Jonathan Sarna, um, the most renowned American Jewish historian meaning historian of American Jewish history uh, at Brandeis University, just wrote an article in *Sapir* a week or so ago, and he critiques he critiques the trends in American Jewish studies, saying that we have abandoned um, we have abandoned our approach to objectivity, that today's uh, scholars all want to be activists in their values, um, and thus um, we have lost the approach of attempting to uh, even attempting, even though it can never perfectly be achieved. To, uh, to seek some level of objective place in how we interpret history and how we teach these values. Um, and he's kind of, he's kind of lamenting uh, that the new politicization of American Jewish studies. Now, one of the last things, what do you mean? It's, it's inevitable, like you can't hide your bias. Subjectivity is inevitable to scholarship. And he wants to argue back. Yes, of course, there's some level of that, but we have to do all we can so um, and I think that's that's partially relevant to kind of the, the zeitgeist in academic culture today of what is the role of educators on campus. And people on the far right will dismiss universities today as being a place of liberal indoctrination. People on the left will oftentimes appreciate that role of wanting to talk about um, things like critical race history or wanting to talk about social movements and phenomena. Um, as it emerges and think it's naive to think that academic studies can be divorced from, from the political dimension. And yet this is like blowing up in campus life at this moment. And the role of academics signing petitions every day against Israel, right? Academics signing petitions against Israel or signing on to other causes. What's the role of these academic you know, activists and so on. So I, I'm not I'm responding directly to Vicki, just kind of building off kind of some of the important issues you raised. Yeah, Lauren. Yeah, um, just put into perspective. I am.
5: I was raised modern Orthodox. I am modern Orthodox, and in Canadian terms, I'm a liberal liberal Zionist child of a Holocaust survivor. So, given all that, my worldview. Just you know, as we unroll the Torah scroll, so things move in a progression. But if you go through the Jewish year, it's a cycle and it circles. So I don't think we can ever forget the halakhot, what we're supposed to do, our past, including our historical past, never forget for a moment how many years our family lived in Krakow and felt that they were perfectly, well, reasonably safe, given that everyday anti-Semitism upholds. So I don't think we should take for granted that we're forever gonna be in North America either. But you know, so I put myself in, in the point of saying, look, we got to remember the past, we have to cherish the past, but we use the past, like we use arat, as you said, arat bereshit, arat uh, sinai, to bring about, that's what we are here for, which is to be like Hashem, which is to practice the midot of tzedakah, and chesed, and all that, and that would bring about redemption so so i get this future in the sense as we were talking yesterday this messianic hope but i get it from our background of being jews and how important
1: it is to stick to it yeah okay very interesting so if you look at the classes source classic sources on what brings Mashiach, they think doing the things of the past brings the future like if every jew was engaged in shabbos If every Jew was engaged in Shabbos, we would bring Mashiach. If every Jew lit Shabbos candles or whatever the case. So it's, yeah, so it's very interesting, this idea of kind of um, what is it exactly that brings progress. And as for Jews, our understanding that actually, in some ways, it is is enacting the lessons of the past uh, that enable the kind of future we actually need. Um, Now, there's a lot to say about that, but to pick up on one other thing you said there, Institutionally, how much do we plan for the future as trends are emerging as opposed to the current reality? And this picks up on what Vicky was saying over there and what Matthew was saying, and to give two examples, how much do we plan for anti-Semitism in 2040? We plan for anti-Semitism in 2021, right? But if you look at the trends and, and where it's growing and where it's emerging for, you know, we can either say, oh, we can either be the naive type who says, oh, it's always gonna be fine. I've always been fine here in America or in Canada. Or we could be the alarmist type that says, it's gonna happen here also, right? As many, you know, many of you might have said, or your grandparents said, or, or parents said, right? Or something in the middle that says, look, we have to be mindful of these, of this trajectory. And and here's another example. Let's say you're building an institution. Um, uh, going along with Matthew said about architecture. Do we build it based on the number of membership? Let's say you have to build a new synagogue right now. You're selling your building and you need a new building. And you know, nobody in mind is specific. Do you do you build that new building based upon your ante- anticipated size uh, uh, of your membership in three mo- six months from now, the number of families you had last year? Or do you say, what are the trends and what do we anticipate 20 years from now? based upon the you know, the all the trends of declining synagogue membership and shifting, shifting trends. And I fear that oftentimes we're not thinking about either categories. We're thinking, what is a donor gonna support? Whatever the donor support will do, right? Um, or, you know, what fits our need right now. And so how do we even begin to think, you know, as Wayne Gretzky famously said, uh, don't go where the puck is being hit, but where the puck was hit to, right? Something like that. You know, so, okay. So uh, you were gonna jump in over there, um, Della.
4: Oh, well, yes. Um, so I, I was gonna say, it's interesting just to hear this conversation and um, specifically about the past because just to bring another perspective, a lot of concepts that we talk as American Jews in the US is it might be a past for Ashkenazi specifically, but for a lot of people who are outside of the US for people who live in the Middle East, Northern Africa, you know, it's pretty much the present. You know, I'm, my parents suffered. They ran away from execution. So it's not really like past, past. It was like 30 years ago. So it's interesting to see that, you know, and kind of compare it and say, like, I think we have different standards <laughs> when it comes about, like, what is the definition of the past?
1: Yeah, Della, this is, this is. This is phenomenal. What a phenomenal point. You're, you're totally right that we are so Ashkenormative. Um, we're so Ashkenormative in how we talk about our history. We almost assume, as American Jews, when we talk about Jewish history, what well, we're talking about all of our parents or grandparents or great grandparents were in the Polish ghetto, right? And they all kind of fled the Shoah, right? Or, you know, and then Israeli Jews have a whole different narrative. And then you're right, the Sephardic Jews emerging from Northern Africa or from you know, other Mediterranean regions or, or uh, Middle East region, region um, had, were, I mean, the, the, the huge numbers who fled, right? And then you look at the Iranian Jewish population and their immigration, all the, and then you look at Jews today in Africa, the Jews who still live in Africa today, all over the world. And I think you're totally right that that it's way too simple to pretend that there was one united Jewish experience in different historical eras. Um, and that today, um, for example, a even when we talk about access to power, when we talk about a wealthy white Jew in America, that's very different than talking about a lower, um, a black Jew in America of living with a, a, in a much lower socioeconomic status. It's a whole different reality of, of the kind of experience they have of access to power, whatever the case is. Yeah, and so Lauren writes over there, 850,000 Jews fled Islamic countries, Right. And so, yeah, these are, these, are, these are really important points. What is, and, and actually, I, so, so let me channel one other idea here, um, which is slightly connected to this. So postmodern philosophers, as I suggested, first in response to the Holocaust and the atrocities of the 20th century, and then in response to other events, they say progress is, they reject the notion of progress. And what they say is with every liberation comes a new oppression. Right? Um, with every liberation comes a new oppression. And so you take a you take an example, um, you know, and actually let's not use any examples because the examples are very complicated. But with every seeming step forward of progress, there's another population that actually gets pushed down in some sense is their argument. Now, I'm not affirming or rejecting. I'm just kind of naming it. But uh, but the way that connects to Della's idea here is that when we talk about progress for some, in fact, that doesn't include a whole bunch of others. When we talk about history for some, it doesn't include others, right? President Biden today is often talking about how everybody's rising. What, is it true? Is everybody rising? You know, all this, I mean, who are the people who are benefiting from the last number of months of progress? And who are the people who, Um, who who have not been affected by that. And so it's always important to see in historical descriptions who is not included in that. And actually, this is one of the major new trends in in, in the study of history, to show the common themes of how we've talked about a historical narrative and then talk about those who weren't discussed. Here's, Here's the most obvious example. When we tell the Exodus story on Pesach, we talk about the Jews leaving, the Hebrews leaving Egypt. But in fact, as we know from the Midrash, the high majority of Hebrews decided to stay in Egypt, right? The high majority, right? So that's not a part of the, of the history as we tell it. That, the historical narrative is the Jews left Egypt. In fact, the Jews stayed. So too, this is all, often the case. We talk about what the Jews did. We talk about the Jews in the civil rights movement. Well, what about the Jews who were slave owners? And what about the Jews who are against the civil rights movement? Oh, you're rocking the boat. So in fact, there's always a counter trend. Okay, Scott, we're up to you.
6: Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, So I have kind of a quick meta question, which is I'm always interested when you watch some of these, you know, high-profile debaters, uh, David Wolpe, Shmuley Boteak, you know, some of these guys, they will often say um, that is not what we believe. This is not how we, we, like, we don't actually believe in an afterlife that goes like that. We, we, we are open to science, you know, whatever. And, and so I guess the question is, do you think that being future oriented, I guess, is more about really understanding like the Torah for real, like what it actually said and really knowing your stuff, or is it more about being open to developments in science and culture and doing a better job of kind of connecting the dots, right? Like if someone says, you know, hey, we've got a theory on quantum gravity that goes like this, is it more about like being literate on that, being conversant on that and saying, here's how that integrates with my religion? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I understand your second paradigm um, and I think I understand your first paradigm And, and correct me if I misunderstood so to start with um let me say this in a way that is um uh, is not um, uh, inappropriate um I don't I, I don't think that the way that rabbi Shmuley Boteach is using his platforms to describe what Judaism is and what Jews believe um is a nuanced and fair representation okay. of our um, of our complexity okay let All me right. let me say it as gently as I can like that um okay Rabbi David Wolpe, who you also mentioned, I think um, uh, uh, is in a, I would put in a different category, who I think he has a very uh, unique talent of stating things very simply, which still have a depth of complexity to them. So he he writes books that I think um, are very simple phrases that seem to not do justice to the complexity. And yet I do think, he manages to still hold on to it. Um, and 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 I think he's not operating as an ideologue. Boteach is operating as an ideologue, as a chabadnik, as a as a far-right politician. Uh Wopi, yes, he's political. He wants to be a centrist on everything, uh, Wopi, but uh but religiously he he wants to attempt to articulate religion outside of the political realm. And um and I think that. Uh, I'm, but, but in general, this point of, of I am very skeptical of saying of anyone who says Judaism says um, or Jews believe like, no, if you if you studied any Judaism, you know, you know, there are conflicting points on everything of what Jews believe and on what Judaism says. There's no, in fact, there's no such thing as Judaism. There is no such thing as Judaism. There are Judaisms, right? There are many Judaisms. Okay. Right, there is no coherent ideology which can be tied up into a bow, uh, that of, of like some package we're going to call Judaism, okay. right? And so, I think that are we talking about the Judaism of Cairo in the 11th century? Are we talking about Brooklyn in the early 20th century? I mean, these are radically different phenomena, and we okay. can try. Are we talking if you look at priestly Judaism, it's almost impossible to even tie that to rabbinic Judaism, you look at Avraham and what they're eating and Sarah and the way they live their life. And, and uh, you compare that to rabbinic Judaism. So yes, I mean, we are so committed to Jewish continuity. And so we do acrobatics to kind of sew all this together in ways that I appreciate. Mm-hmm. And yet, um, so that's the first thing. So the second thing to your point is, I think that we should have reject two approaches and, and find a middle ground. The first approach I think we should reject. Is that everything new is true. The newest studies, the newest trends, the newest ideologies, and thus are, are make our Judaism, M- M- Judaisms mold and mold into those new ideologies. Okay. The other approach I think is wrong is to live in the traditional, the realm of traditional ideas in some kind of vacuum, and to be deeply skeptical of everything new that emerges. Um, until someone, major scholar, has made it all kind of fit together, or whatever. I, I think our general orientation should be an intrigue, an intrigue, and an engagement with new ideas, uh, film, art, most definitely science, right, um, you know, and um, uh, and various trends, and, um, and while we're intrigued and engaged, not being a the first adopter necessarily, then figure out how to connect the dots, as you said. Yeah. How do these dots connect? And in some cases, the dots don't have to, have to connect very, very closely. I'll give you an example. There's a new medical study on how we're going to wipe out this type of cancer. Like, okay, great. Jewish tradition says, pikuach nefesh, save life. That's all I need. I'm going to embrace whatever the newest science is on this stuff, right? Or scientists are pro-vaccination, good, I'm going to be pro-vaccination, I know Judaism says save life, whatever the case is, right? Now, Now, other things are going to be more complicated when it's in the realm of ideology, political realm, philosophical ideology, where we can be engaged, but in the realm of ideas that is not in the normative, the normative realm, the normative realm, what is going to work today to reduce gun violence? What is going to work today to cure diseases? What is going to work to cure hunger, okay? In the normative realm, we can be incredibly open. In the ideological realm, I think we can be a little slower. Now, here's the last thing I wanna say about this, because Scott's question is so great, that I wanna be clear that I don't think we should be purely in the reactive realm. I think we should be comfortable in some ways being reactive. Jews don't have to be on the front lines of everything. We can take some time to process, right? Oh, that's a that's a very interesting new book. I want to think about it for a year or two and think how that fits with my Jewish values before I just adopt this as the new truth. I want like to take my time.
6: Like people like with all the people now going into space. Like, are we going to be interplanetary? Like right, you're saying right. we don't necessarily have to be on the cutting edge of interplanetary yeah. galactic travel. Yes.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yes, okay. exactly. <laughs> I on the one hand. I think this is amazing. We're, it's, it's a process of scientific discovery. On the other hand, I have my doubts. I have my doubts as to where our resource, our precious resources should be allocated. And morally, is the highest priority the the, 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 the realm of discovery of, of, of the galaxies? Like most definitely interesting, most de- hopefully helpful. Is that more important than investing in, in, in eradicating global hunger? You know? Um, and but now let me be clear though. On another realm, I think we should be on the front lines. On the front lines, the ur- I think where the urgency emerges is not in the ideological realm where we can be a little slower, a little slower to say you know, um, you know figure that out. But in the in the moral realm, I think in the moral realm as ethicists, we need to be on the front lines of thinking about the pressing issues um, as they emerge um of, of various forms and that's the case so I, I, and i think there's a filter we have to we have to figure out how to filter this stuff out so i hope uh i hope that made a little uh was totally. clear until Great, all. Okay. thank you totally. okay great michael i think you were going to share michael did i miss you yeah um i think
2: the the great divide i see in sort of Jewish approach to future and past is is that wall that that so dominates so much else, that's between the Orthodox and the rest of the Jewish world. I think the Orthodox look to the past as a much more direct model and guide and law on how to interpret the future, whereas I think the rest look upon the past is a background that we build upon and we try and take principles from as we move forward and interpret it. And I think underlying that is a concept of the direct involvement and impact of our daily life of Hashem. Is it direct or that concept? And and I think this all feeds into, if you're gonna, this, this great divide is with so many other issues on, on how to pass. I think a big example of that is how the Orthodox view the Holocaust and, 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 and as a message from God about a failure of the Jewish people, whereas you see the, the rest of your Jewish world see this in a very different dynamic of what you were saying and uh, uh, looking to the future and preventing
1: it. Okay, that so that's very interesting, Michael. So uh, a few things here. Firstly, I think, you know why Orthodox Jews by and large are so good at marketing? Because you focus a lot on marketing when you don't want to change the product. If you look at Chabad, you look at Aisha Torah, you look at Orsamech, right? They say, we got the same product. We need to really have better marketing, better videos, better videos out there, better websites, better ways to to highlight this dinner we're going to have, like great marketing, products the same, more, more or less. You know, but when you enter liberal Judaism um, and you say, you know what, we're open to shifting the product. You know, marketing is not really our focus. Like, let's rethink what the prayer experience is going to be like here. Let's let's create a new C door. Let's let's change it from an hour and a half long to 45 minutes long. Let's change Saturday morning priority to Friday, Friday night. We're going to let's let's actually do what offer what we're offering differently in line with the trends. Now. there is a middle ground there. There are those who believe that Jewish products should constantly evolve. And there are those who believe the Jewish products should not evolve and only the marketing should evolve. And there are those in the middle. And by, I, I don't want to be sound like I'm always only celebrating the middle and creating false extremes. Like I value both of those approaches. Like I, I really value like a progressive synagogue. That's like, we want to get young people in the door Let's like, make it cool and change everything we're doing. And I really value traditional places that are like, look, we don't need to change our davening at all. Like, this is our davening, you know, like, you know, and, but the middle approach here says, look, there are parts of our product that can't change, parts of our product that must change, right? There's parts of it product that must change. And, you know, it's actually very interesting. I'm, I'm on a rabbinic lister right now that's like, how can we make Rosh Hashanah davening, you know, two hours long instead of 12? Because like normally we do 12 hours, now we're gonna do wait a minute, how come you could all of a sudden figure this out because of COVID you couldn't figure this out two years ago? (laughs) You know, the people who were asking you for two hours, you know? And so, um, and so yeah, so Michael, your your point there is really good. And I think you're that in in many ways you're right. In many ways you're right that the division here is an orthodox and liberal divide and how we relate to the past. And this is precisely why um why, you know, someone in 95-degree in, in Tel Aviv or 105-degree Phoenix, it, uh, a chassid is going to be wearing a strimal. He's not wearing the strimal for the reason his great-grandfather wore it. His great-grandfather wore the strimal because he was really cold in Poland and it was snowy. He's wearing the strimal in 105 degrees because his great-grandfather wore it, right? He wants to do what he did regardless of what the reason was why he did it. And so you're right with that, that, that commitment to maintaining the past. Um, and and, and your, 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 your example about the Shoah is quite complicated. And so I'm gonna bracket that one for another conversation, but I appreciate you raising that also. Yes, Lauren. You're on, you're on mute. Sorry about that.
5: I, I just need to, as a modern Orthodox Jew who yeah. goes to a partnership yeah. minion, yeah. Yeah. I gotta let Michael know there's no the orthodox, the right, right, probably dislike us more than they dislike reform right, Jews. Right, right. Um, and 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 the idea that you have of the up, I've never heard such a thing. I mean, to me, that would be obscene. And I mean, I grew up in a B'nai Akiva background. Uh, and, and, you know, in Toronto, almost every Jew my age was a child of at least one Holocaust survivor, if not two, so I think you really need to rethink. And I mean, Shmueli, really, I think you're you're a graduate of, of Tavovei, right, of Rabbi Avi uh, 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 Weiss, which is like as liberal as you can get, while still keeping mitzvot. So I, I just want you to be a little okay. bit more aware. Well, we, and by we the have
2: way, a, we just answer that by saying we have a son who's a redeem right. in Israel. And I'm talking about the bad. It's more in the Israeli context, and this is thing things in the Haredim world. I have said explicitly, and 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 it's a it's it's come across as a, now now obviously Shmuel is going to move more and can you know if that's but that's my understanding of the and again there there's a range in the Haredim world in Israel, but there is not the same. You know, I, I most of that world does not accept the modern orthodox in, in the like, way. That is the they do.
4: It,
2: yeah, of course the they so, do. Yeah. Of course they do So I should have said it for, but you I should have said ultra-orthodox. Ultra-orthodox, but but I think that's how many people who don't know Judaism look at Judaism and, 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 and it, it it I think we have to understand that the, the, the different contexts.
0: Okay. And we're Anything.
5: probably the majority. And to be honest, the most liberal, egalitarian shuls I ever went to were in southern Yerushalayim where the Anglos live. <laughs> like, that's, you know, and that same guy on a shvitsy day in Tel Aviv will pass a guy with a kippah who's wearing shorts and the coolest t-shirt possible. Like, we're people too. So it, just to let you know to please not Put us all in the same
1: bracket. Okay, so good. So thank you. So thank you both. And, and just to highlight, um, yeah, I think Michael, what Michael's saying over there about the Haredi world being very, uh, very true. And what Lauren's saying over there, very true about the modern Orthodox approach. For those who aren't, aren't familiar with the distinctions between modern Orthodoxy and the Haredi world, I, I put six main categories on the side chat over there that highlight the major, the major uh, differentiations. Number one is on gender. The, the notion of women's inclusion or participation is seen very differently in modern orthodoxy and the ultra-orthodox world. Second is on sexuality, particularly LGBTQ community, how, how the, the kind of nuances there. The third is an appreciation of academic study. The Haredi world wouldn't want their children in universities. Modern orthodox most certainly would. The fourth is in Zionism, as is related, serving in the army. The Dati, Le'umi, the religious nationalists would serve in the army. The Haredi wouldn't. The fifth would be the engagement or partnership with others outside of Orthodoxy, partnerships with other denominations and with, with Gentiles. And the sixth would be voting patterns. Modern Orthodox are typically voting liberal. Kareti are typically voting uh, you know, in, in, the, in the recent era um, you know, right of center. So there's, there's more to say there, but um, I appreciate that. So friends, we're going to pause here. There's still so much more to say. I want to give you a highlight of next week, because it's hard to believe we are already completed debate number 15. Debate number 16, my friends, is what is the purpose of life? A purpose to life versus no meaning to life. Okay, we're going to explore this powerful theme next week. I hope you'll continue to join us at 10 o'clock. If you're up for a double header, we have our Hammerman Family Lecture today at 1 o'clock with Rabbi Sharon Brous at 1 o'clock. So we'll see you in two hours if you're uh, if you're not sick of us yet. Or if you're sick of me, it's okay, because it won't be me talking. See you soon. Thanks so much.
5: Thank you.